from the front lines of the green rush. This is Green Entrepreneur, where business owners talk about how they found success in cannabis and how you can too. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Green Entrepreneur podcast. My name is John Small, and I am the editor-in-chief of Green Entrepreneur. So great to have you with us today. We have a legend in the house. My guest is Brett Feldman, who is a infamous cultivator and the co-founder, along with Cameron Damwick, of Wonder Brett, which is a California-based cannabis lifestyle brand. And for years, Brett's rare genetics exotic terpenes and meticulous cultivation skills has made him a favorite among cannabis connoisseurs. You might have heard of some of his uh, clientele, Dr. Dre, Snoop Dogg, Exhibit, Be Real, Pooh Bear, and Justin Bieber. His weed is so famous that it is known in the community as That Brett. (laughs) Well, now he has made his products more widely available to the whole world by opening up a flagship dispensary in Hollywood called Wonder Brett. And uh, Brett was one of the 19 recipients of California's coveted social equity retail license, which I want to hear about. Brett Feldman, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, John. I appreciate being here. It's a really great honor. Thank you. So you have a really great story. I kind of want to start in the beginning here. Growing up in the Valley, right? Talk about how you first discovered weed for yourself. Just it was like a personal thing, right? That's how you how did you first encounter weed? Well, I grew up in the 80s and uh, they had the D.A.R.E. program rocking really hard. They would bring in, you know, drug addicts into the classroom and be like, hold up like a little piece of chalk and be like, this little piece of rock cocaine and I would kill someone for it. And they'd be like crazy, you know, and they put marijuana and, and everything in the same category. And I grew up thinking that I was watching like Miami Vice and A-Team and Magnum P.I. I grew up right in that time period where everything was super 80s out. And I grew up thinking that really weed was like a hardcore drug that you were going to overdose on until about 13 when I found my sister's weed. And then I was seriously like crying, thinking that she was going to overdose. And they had this like talk, you know, like, no, weed's not like that. And then like not too long after I found my mom had was smoking weed, too. And she had like a, a little stash in her bathroom with this little like purple graphics acrylic bong and the metal down stem with like candle wax as a seal because the grommet was gone and like very 80s yeah yeah very very much so and i started picking away at her weed and trying it and then i got caught that same day i was like stealing her stash and i got caught the same day for smoking weed and from her we were super dumb like we we reeked like weed we were super stoned we were eating everything in the house and we got caught you know and um once I smoked it, though, see, I had eight, I still have ADD and dyslexia, and you'll can tell by the way I jump around in conversations and timeline. But uh, uh, listen, I'm 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 there too. <laughs> yeah, once I started smoking weed, it was uh, very clear to me. It was like, oh man, my I have, as I I kind of explained it like there's like a six lane highway in my brain or a seven lane highway just going all the time, and then when I smoke, it kind of just brings it down to a two lane highway, and I can. It's like I can just focus and I can think more clearly and I can get a, a view from like, you know, an elevation looking down, kind of going, OK, this is what I need to do versus being like stuck in whatever's going on in my head this over and over. And uh, I still have that come and go. But, you know, that's really where like cannabis for me, like I fell in love with it because I it, they had me on 
you know, Ritalin and Dextrine and all these terrible drugs. And I was like, you know, 14. And then when I started smoking, it was like, I could focus on a different level. And, and it just, it changed me as a person. I just fell in love with the plant and just knew like from then on, I was like, I need more weed and I need better weed. And I just became like this constant hunt for like the best weed always with my friends. And in the San Fernando Valley, we were blessed. There were so many great like underground growers here with great strains. Like the skunk was here. You had Northern Lights here. You had Hawaiian Northern Lights here. You Purple Haze. These are all strains that are like that are gone now because of Kush and kind of, you know, and now we're trying to go back and find them. And some of them actually have gone back and found. But, you know, we lost a lot of really good strains because of just how dominant Kush was. Yeah, let's talk about that. So you started growing yourself. You went from being a, a user of weed, a smoker of weed, to wanting to grow your own stuff. And it seemed like in your community, that was kind of a thing to do, right? There was a lot of like your friends were doing that and people were growing their own their own weed at the time. Well, I would say like 96, that's when like I graduated high school and um, no, actually I yeah, I graduated in 96 and um, I went to Humboldt for college and um, Kush wasn't in my life till like 97, 98. And I was just always hunting for the best weed, the best weed up there. There was some really great train wreck in Northern Lights trains that were in skunk that were really dominant up there that were really good. And then um, a lot of people were growing up there, but they wouldn't let like an outsider from LA like myself ever really visit into their world like that. You know, even though I went to college there for a few years, I only visited like maybe one or two farms that people would ever let me go to and see growing plants. For the most part, you're always buying weed from some in-between person who just, because the farmers don't want to be known and don't want to be at risk having people know where their farms are. So once I was going up and down from humble back and forth, always bringing good weed that was like my favorite weed home, show with my friends and share. And sure enough, I just met this person randomly at the sushi bar who was like out of weed. I reeked like weed. And he was like, yo, he's like, can you hook me up? And I was like, all right, cool. I gave him a little bit of weed. He's like, all right, just, I want to bless you and give you some weed back to later. Like, and, you know, it's just some like underworld, underground stoner connection that just randomly happened by the stars. And this guy, he was connected with Josh D in that circle of friends. And when he gifted me back this weed that he gave me, he gave me back Kush Bubba. It wasn't even the OG Kush at that point. Cause I, I first smoked Kush Bubba first. And then that was the most dominant strain at the time in the San Fernando Valley. Like it was rapper weed. B-Real was rapping about Kush and all these things. And then actually he hadn't rapped about Kush yet at that point. Um, he didn't rap about Kush till he got the OG Kush, which was from uh, about a year later. And then we gave him that strain and then he he rapped in it and uh, in his in his uh, song about having Kush plants in his backyard, reeking up the neighborhood and stuff was the line. And, and um, he blew up Kush and put it on the map. And that was just game changing. Yeah. So when you got gifted this Kush just by this random guy or, you know, this, that really changed your life, right? Because you were able to bring that back to California and, and start growing your own. Well, it was in the San Fernando Valley, actually, where it happened, like right in my home neighborhood. Oh, OK, right in, like, I see. It wasn't in Humboldt. Yeah, right on Reseda and in Granada Hills and in, in uh, Northridge there where we lived. And stoners... <laughs> We all have the same habits. Like we have a little too much money. Sometimes we're doing good. And what do we do? We go eat sushi in the middle of the day when everybody's at work and we do things like that. And that's how you, I knew he was the same kind of cloth because we both look like that type. And it's funny how we, we don't think we look like that. But when you look back, you're like, man, we were so obvious that we were these guys that were just like, you're 25 years old or, or 20 years old and you're coming in and spending a hundred dollars on sushi. Like who's doing this? You know, like, 
So that's how I, I became good friends with him. His name was Mike, and uh, he introduced me to the Kush world. And then I then got the Kush from Josh D and uh, his guy, uh, Ian, that live in the Bay. And um, that's where the OG, the original OG Kush was like housed up there. And so we kind of brought it back down to L.A. Because even Josh wasn't even living in L- at L.A. at that point. He had left with the strain as well. How did you improve on it and make it your own thing? and make it so kind of legendary and make it that bread. Just, you know, I would say for whatever reason, I have an innate intuition for plants, especially cannabis. Not really, I haven't put a lot of other times into other, a lot of time into other plants. Like I grow blueberries in my backyard for fun and a few other things that are like tomatoes. But I've spent over 20 years just trying to figure out the cannabis plant and the nutrient and like how every single nutrient affects the flavor. And that's where I think my uh, talent really lies in the space. Other than like the brand side of things is different, but as a grower, we've always been good at selecting and curating good flavors when we've done our pheno hunts. And we've had good intuition on what strains would breed good together. Coming from a food background, we've kind of approached it in the sense of like bitter, sweet, sour, spicy, like these things, like like what goes good together, you know, like when you think about a cross, you're not going to want to put something citrusy with like, like something crazy gassy, like the black orchid, like it's just going to come out like a weird funk and you're not going to like it. But certain things make sense, like blueberry and OZK or like blueberries are very delicate turf. It's not dominant. And Skittles is a very sweet turf. So there's nothing that's really going to conflict there. Like you're going to have sweet and fruity and those, those are going to complement each other versus like something like GMO with OZK. You're never going to taste the OZK. The GMO is going to take over. So you just have this instincts. Yeah. Yeah. These just assumptions that we made that end up being correct. And when did you guys just say, you know, you talked about making it into a brand. When did, when did you decide to create Wonder Bread and, and this business that you started with Cameron? How did that come about? The reputation was always our thing for our brand. Before we were in a brand, it was a reputation thing because that's how the weed world worked. It was very underground and reputation-based. So people were kind of like seeking us out in like 2010 and 11 and like trying to get us to go to Colorado and other places in Oregon and to set up and work at like run operations and bring strains and genetics. And when we went there, I was just like, man, I don't want to leave. I love California. I'm not a a big traveler. I don't get on planes very often. And I love California. It's such a big state from the South to the very tip of California. You know, there's so much variety here, you know, San Diego, Central California, Yosemite, all this LA, San Francisco. We didn't want to leave California. And when we were going to see these other states, like Colorado and stuff like that, we were seeing like the beginning of some brands kind of starting to do packaging and they were only doing it for edibles. And I was like, I don't really like edibles that much at the time. And um, they're just too unpredictable and too much of a ride. So now they're much more refined and the dosings are really precise. But uh, I was like, why aren't people packaging flour? And I started to think about it is because they just don't have the ability to make con- create a consistent product that could be like a Coca-Cola type standard where you, I'm going to buy Kush and it's going to be Kush every single time, you know, like. And um, and when we came back to L.A. from that trip, I was like, dude, we, we have to start now because by the time these guys in Colorado and all these, they're going to just refine their their skills and figure out how to do this at, and get licensing and all these things. And we're going to be way behind. So we just started building the brand very quickly on like that. I always wanted to build a brand. I always dreamt about legal cannabis. It's just crazy how the world kind of came our way. Yeah. It was good timing. Yeah, I, I, that's all it really is. Right time, right place. I feel like that's the story of my life. Most, a lot of times of 
how did you get here? How'd you get there, man? It was right person introduced me here, right time, right place. And just preparing for that moment too, like always trying to be ready for the opportunity. You know, I guess that's preparation. Yeah, that's the the formula, the magic formula. Well, I want to step back for one minute because I, I, I think I missed how you crossed over into the music world. And, you know, I mentioned in the intro that you're very well regarded in that world, particularly in the hip hop community. And talk to me a little bit about, there's a, there's a story about you running into Exhibit, right? Like a Tower Records? Yeah, when Tower Records were still open. Yeah, I missed Tower Records on, on the one on Sunset. Yeah, that was awesome. And yeah. that might end up turning into like a dispensary one day is, is the rumor that there's like a, a licensed dispensary attached to that. And, but I think it's all tied up in funding issues. Yeah, so I lived in uh, Granada Hills and there's a Tower Records on Balboa and Devonshire there right next to the movie theater and right next to the Fat Burger. If you guys remember the shopping center back then. And um, I would just go in there and again, like, we guys, we congregated these certain places at sushi bars and places where you can kind of buy stuff like music and, and have, the, we, I had a strong CD collection at that point because you just buying CDs and you go into, I go into the store and he's in front of me in line and you, and I just like, there's a limo out front of the store waiting for him. He's on his way to go to this uh, video shoot for his song year 2000 at that time. And it was 1999, but the song was called year 2000. And uh, I was like, I just turned, I just tapped on him and was like, hey man, I'm a big fan of your music. I literally, I think I exhibit CD in my hand that I was buying with all the other stuff I was buying. I think I was buying some DJ Quick and some other stuff. And um, I was like, yo, man, I'm a big fan. I'd love to give you some uh, some bomb kush. And he's like, he's like I, don't, I don't know what that is. And I was like, it's the best weed right now. And he was like, oh shit, yeah, I want some of that. And then, so I gave him a little bit. I gave him my number and I said, hit me up later if you want more. And then um, he just hit me up like an hour later, like come down to the studio or, or come down to the, the video shoot. And uh, I showed up and Exhibit's a really nice guy. He gave me royal treatment, always looked out for me, always made sure I was taken care of in a safe place. And he's just he's one of those really class act guys that, again, very lucky to meet the right person. And yeah, that's exactly. You just happened to be at that Tower Records at that time. It was a lot of it, like, yeah, like your timing was great. But of course, your product was also great. Otherwise, he wouldn't have called you to come by, back in an hour. And then, I mean, I read in some bio that this is, were you there for when they were sh when they were recording the chronic or were they just using your chronic <laughs> as they were recording? Uh, not the original chronic, chronic okay. 2001. Got it. Chronic 2001. I was still... I remember ninth grade coming back from summer and everybody had the chronic album on their, their desk at school with their CD Walkman, you know, like their Sony Walkman, you know, like get that three second skip delay. You were killing it. So the chronic two was your, you were, it, you were helping and we, were you around in the studio during that or were they just uh, calling it in? I was sometimes allowed to hang out in the studio, but there were definitely times where they're like, no, no one's allowed in. They're working with Eminem and, and Snoop or something or, or a bunch of big people. But there were times where Exhibit would be there just writing all the time because Exhibit did a lot of writing for that album as well. And a lot of writers were always coming in and out. That's how like Dre did it. He brought in the best. Everybody wrote, wrote, wrote. He probably made 10 albums and whittled it down to one. And that's what you got when you got Chron 2001, which is this masterpiece in Dr. Dre's collection. So I'm still waiting for my producer's inspiration credit for vibe credits, but I don't know if I'll get them. <laughs> Man, it's like royalties. You should be getting your royalties just for... <laughs> I don't want any money. I just want that little bit of like... Because what is funny is I have been in so many rooms where the vibe was dead and they, they're like, come on, man, pull up. And I'm like, all right, cool, I'll pull up. And then all of a sudden they're making hits. You know what I mean? And I'm like, 
they're like, they're looking for thanks for bringing the vibe. I'm like, no problem. So I would love to get a, a vibe credit. They're not, you know, like that would be amazing. Like, <laughs> right. Has that Brett been mentioned in, in any raps? Like, does it, has it popped up in any lyrics? Yeah, there's, there's like a, like one or two be real songs and a few UK artists that have, that have kind of put it in there. But for the most part, like we aren't the loudest group of people out there. Like our product speaks for itself. And there's always people that I can run across on a daily basis that they either come into our dispensary or I'm at another dispensary have never heard of our brand ever. So I still feel like we have a long way to go when it comes to actually getting like awareness and education about our brand. The people that are like super heavy connoisseurs, they're looking for, you know, the top five weed around all the time. So they're, they find us, you know, and, and they know about us, but I think the masses, you know, they know about other brands more about than our brand. Well, that's going to change with your, I think with your dispensary and what, all the stuff you're doing. Talk to me a little bit if you're comfortable with it, because it, it does play into the whole social equity thing. You, you know, you had some trouble with the law earlier on in your life. Are you comfortable telling us like what happened and yeah it's simple wrong place wrong time <laughs> okay sometimes there's the right place right time <laughs> and sometimes yeah, this is one of those ones where <laughs> i was at the wrong place the wrong time and i was at a my uh i had this i had this space where i was building these vaporizers i built this vaporizer and it patented and everything and it was called uh vaporator and um, it came out right at the same time as the volcano and i patented it in california which was a bad idea because you could only sell it in California then because it was considered paraphernalia and Volcano could ship everywhere. So I got put out. But um, at that same location, I had a recording studio there that I let my friends build. There were this band and they were a great rock band called Freak Circle. And uh, I was trying to burn CDs for them at the studio. And I bought this like CD burner with this they, you, you know, burn 3D C, 300 CDs in a few hours and to print the art on it. And we had all this stuff. They had a show the next night and I was just trying to help them out. And um, the only way I could get the stupid CD burner to work was in my car out front of the studio because the Wi-Fi, whatever was acting really weird. And I, I had to like sit in the car and do it. So I'm sitting in the car. It's like one in the morning. I'm out there by myself. And sure enough, the cops drive by and they just flip a you know, turn around and just pull up right alongside of me. And they're like, what are you doing here? You know? And I'm like, I'm just burning CDs. And you know, they're like, smells like weed, blah, blah, blah. You burn more than CDs, right? Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You know? And I'm like, you know, it was just wrong place, wrong time. So they just, they arrested me for possession. And, uh, I had forgot that I had like a a scale in the trunk of my car because I was just so sloppy and it'd been sitting, it'd probably been there for six months and I probably forgot about it because it was like this, they're like, what's in this bag? And I was like, I don't know. You know, and they I literally didn't know it was in there and forgot about it. And then it was like a laptop bag or something. And I pull it out and there's like this scale in there. And they're like, oh, selling. And I'm, so they took me in and they charged me with a bunch of stuff, trafficking and intent to sale and all these things that they could, everything they could think of to write up, they they tried to charge me with it. And shout out to Eric Shevin, great attorney. He got the case dismissed from me. They didn't have a legal right to stop it even talk to me. I was on private property and I was just too young to understand what my rights were. And, and it wouldn't have mattered. They probably still would arrest me anyway that night. So by getting the, the arrest and having that on my record still, when they did the social equity program, even though that I didn't end up with a felony, I still was qualified 
because of my economic situation. I never made a lot of money in life. You know, historically, I've always been this small grower and I've always had like a recording studio and, and, and made music and, and done production and stuff like that. And, you know, it's just been like getting by and, and, and just surviving. So when the applications came, it was like, I really did fit the category. I had the record for it and I had already been in the weed business for so long. It just made so much sense. It was like, this is my opportunity. And I thought it was a really long shot. I had no expectation of getting, I was like, I'm going to waste $15,000 trying to do this on, and attorney fees and trying to help me get these applications. And, and then I, you know, then you realize you're like, oh, it's going to be way more than that. You're going to have to get a piece of property and sit on it for three or four years. And luckily I found a good partner that was able to do that. Uh, it's not something that I could do. And that's the way the social equity program was designed. It was like, you're supposed to find the financial backers to help support your business and they're supposed to help you do it. And you're supposed to be entitled to a certain amount of that business. And um, it's working out so far. I got really lucky. We won one of 100. You know, we battled for like two, three years of paying bills to, to get it open. And now it's finally open. And it's like, it's so amazing to have it open. It's such an eye opener. Yeah, we're talking about the Wonder Brett dispensary here, which I had the pleasure of uh, going to your op- one of your openings. And it is really a beautiful store. It's actually in my neighborhood. So I'm very excited about that because I can walk there. And uh, it's a beautiful store. Tell me a little bit about how you decide to design it. It's very like colorful and definitely like it's not subtle. Like it's an eye catcher. It's not gaudy or anything, but it's you walk by it. You're like, what's that? And there's nothing like it in the neighborhood. That's for sure. It's a it's a cool neighborhood. It's it's funny. It's kind of an, a little bit of an orthodox Jewish neighborhood. <laughs> At least that little block is. It's right there. Yeah, it is. It is heavy. Yeah, heavy earth. I used to live really uh, when my first apartment was really around the corner. But I know that neighborhood very well. But anyway, what, was there some pushback in that neighborhood? And But also tell me a little bit about the concept of the design. So we'll start with the design side of things. My partner, David Judakin, he built nightclubs and had built some of the most like, iconic nightclubs in, in L.A., uh, Garden of Eden and some of these places that are very popular. So he has this great eye for aesthetic. When we got together to, to design the store, it was like, I just want to, we want to keep it clean and simple and classy, like how our brand aesthetic is. And that's kind of the core of the design is like, okay, the Wonder Bread brand has all these colorful boxes and very, you know, bright, fla- you know, colors and flavors. And that's what we are is like flavor over everything. And that's what, you know, leads to a great experience. So when you have a lot of colors, it's like, it can get really like ugly looking quick if you don't use those colors. Like it gets to be very like yeah, too much. Yeah, exactly. I can't think of the right word. Clashing and stuff like that. So for colors to pop, they, they need to be on neutral backgrounds, either white, gray, black, something. You know. So we went with those like natural earth tones. And David, we always just talked about it being a very classy place. I want it to be somewhere where you want to hang out, and you know that building, that location really has that vibe in it because we have these natural skylights coming in with the light and then the natural wood and then you have these bright colors popping out at you and it's kind of like a a curated museum experience or art installation is is how i always want to try and look at our brand is this art capsule and then we're trying to deliver that experience through cannabis and have that be the vehicle for us to like show all our ideas of what cannabis should be the the standard we're trying to set in the industry is is what we're going for but the stores we want it to be classy so we're really thinking you know like apple's classy and clean but it's too sterile 
Mad Men went really heavy on that vibe as well. And it, it was, so it, it went more earthy, more, I would say like Fred Siegel or something like a department store, like Saks Fifth Avenue or something, something like a nice store that you would go into, like in that sense. So that's what we're trying to create is that experience and just a place where you feel really comfortable. You're like, yeah, I don't feel like it's my turn. Go. I don't like that vibe at a dispensary where you're in line and they got you lined up and they're like, okay, you're, it's you come up here. What do you want? You're like, I like to walk around. Yeah. It's a good experience. It's like a, it's the kind of dispensary I would take people from out of town to because you know, people are, their minds are always blown that don't live in California or a legal state, even New York, but they come here and they're like, what the, you know, because in New York, they don't have stores like that yet. Right. So it's a kind of place that you want to take out of towners to, to, to show them what's going on in California. It kind of blows their mind. I didn't ask you about what one, the origin of the word wonder Brett, like was, is there a story behind naming it that? Well, it's exhibited again with the nicknames. It was like my original nickname was Brett, the super white man. And that was, it kind of started as this like superhero white man character because the wee guy and, and it just morphed into, to wonder Brett. And I think just because of the like wonder bread. Yeah. I didn't even think of that. Well, that's cool. Was Cameron okay with the fact that it's not, that his name is not in the, the name? Yeah. He's totally cool. He likes being in the, the shadow. He's not the shadow, but like he likes being in the, the background. Right. And, and being like, he's more private than I am. And, we were both very private, but like, for whatever reason, we went with my name in the name because we felt like that was the reputation that was going to help us build the brand faster because we had, I already had a good reputation in this, in the certain communities and entertainment circles. And so we were just trying to lean on anything to make it easier for us because starting from scratch, it was really hard with people were all selling, you know, stuff in little pill bottles and dispensaries are like, this is in a box. Like, how do I even know that there's weed in here or product? Like, what if the customer comes back and says there's nothing in this? Like, and I'm like, well, then my brand suffers, not you. Like, you'd never buy anything from me again. Like, you're going to make that customer happy and give them a, probably a free eighth. But like, I'm the one who's out of business because I ruined my own business. So it just became very reputation built and the product had to be of certain standard and quality so that the reputation could be built of like a Coca-Cola, like, consistency and uniqueness where you can identify your favorite strain every time and you know it because you've had it so many times consistently like that. So that seems to be an important part of your success in your formulas, the consistency, making sure that when people have a, try a Wonder Bread product, they're going to have the same experience. It's not going to be any surprises there in a, in a negative way. Yeah. That's the hardest part about cannabis at scale, or at least like high quality cannabis at scale. Like you can produce a lot of like mid tier stuff or lower tier and proliferate it and have it all be the same, all of its booth or, or whatever, you know, Bama or whatever, but like to produce good weed at scale where somebody in San Diego can go buy an eighth of pink Picasso. And then a week later be in NorCal and buy that same pink Picasso strain and have it be that like, yep, this is the same strain, same moisture content, same flavor, same look, and that you can tell like, oh, this was from a batch that came from, you know, a month ago. And this is a batch that came from two months ago and they're still fresh. and They're still good. And that's the one thing that I would love people to understand. Like when they see the date on the packaging, like you have to subtract off 30 days immediately. Like the harvest date that it gets cut down on is not the date you can smoke it on. It's super wet. 
it gets chopped that day. It has to dry for 14 days. It has to cure for at least another 10 days. Then it goes into like testing for four or five days. And then it gets packaged in, in one or two days. That is the freshest it can be. But some, some people will look at the box and be like, this is already a month old. You're like, dude, you cannot smoke weed on day one or even on day 14. Like it wouldn't even be enjoyable on this. It wouldn't taste good. So there's a lot of little nuances of education that I wish people we could get out there and, and get that out there to them. So well, hopefully your yeah, your 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 bud tenders, at least at your store, can help with that stuff. So the store, I know it's only been open a few weeks, but and of course it opened right during as we record this, like the Delta variant is kind of a happening and people there's a mask mandate now in LA. But how has business been? I mean, you've got a ton of press. Our mutual friend Sonia Hendricks, shout out to her, your publicist, for helping you get a lot of that press. But she, Justin Bieber was, lots of photographs went worldwide of Justin Bieber. He gets his weed out in California, you know, and it kind of like went perfectly with his new song. And, you know, he's obviously a, a fan. So is that kind of stuff, is that, I mean, how are you feeling about, about the success of the store so far? I feel blown away, extremely uh, humbled by the turnout of people and support. I really Never thought it would be as uh, strong of a turnout on the grand opening on that first day. We had the line two, three hundred people deep, and um, that was amazing. And and I'm really excited about what we can do with that experience of the store. Of, of it's my eyes are just and my ideas are just starting to come to me about like what we're gonna do. You know, it's like until you have it, you're just sitting there like, well, we'll have it one day and. Well, eventually it'll open, but dude, after two or three years of having weekly meetings, you're just going through the motions and just going, well, maybe it'll open one day. You know, like this store was supposed to be open 12 months ago, January 1. (laughs) Right. But the COVID and I'm sure that was kind of the. Yeah. But the regulations with the state and the city, like we couldn't open any faster just because of how fast they move. Like they move so slow. And um, I just don't even, I, I don't even know how anybody else. Like, I feel really blessed that we have our brand and that, like, I have to put it to that store. But I can't even imagine, like, another social equity applicant paying for two or three years on on a location, but not having a brand. It is opening up a dispensary and starting from zero without having, like, that little bit of, like, wind behind your pushing you. Like, our brand has a little bit of push into the... Well, yeah, it helps that you have all these celebrity... Yeah, then you have a reputation. You're not coming from... You know, this is as we talked about in this podcast for decades, and I, I'm excited to see like what it becomes. And you're probably going to expand, maybe if it, this one works out, to other locations. I would imagine that's the plan. Well, that's the plan. And you just recently opened a new farm in Santa Barbara. Is that correct? Or yeah, we just we partnered with uh, a really good guy, Vanilla Bob, is his nickname. <laughs> Great name. Wonder Bread meets Vanilla Bob. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's pretty funny, actually. And I didn't give him his nickname either. That was his, but he got it. So he's a really uh, nice guy, and he's got a beautiful piece of property out there. And he'd been growing out there. And he's one of the very few guys who actually made it over the finish line when it comes to getting your state license and not just like a, a county permit or something like that. So once he got that, we were able to really talk about doing a, a solid deal and, uh, you know, now we've converted his farm to all our genetics at there out there in uh, Santa Barbara. And, and that is for our vape line and to feed like maybe some other hash products and our solventless edibles. So everybody out there who's thinking we're going to start selling outdoor as our flowers, that's not happening. <laughs> but we are going to use our, our really good genetics to create great vape pens and stuff like that. So 
And you have another farm. I mean, your main farm is down in Long Beach, right? Yeah, the 22,000 square foot indoor location is in Long Beach where we produce all the flour for the brand statewide for Southern California, Central California, and Northern California. We don't let anybody grow our weed or we don't outsource farms to grow our stuff. That's, that's one of the things we pride ourselves on. And a lot of other brands, some of that, some of them do that because they're small and that's all they have. Some brands are much bigger and they've never had their own operations and they've just built their brand off the back of tons of different grows that they deal with. And that leads to inconsistent product and lack of control over the destiny of, of your, your brand. So it's a limiting factor that we understand that like we could have been bigger if we'd done those types of deals, but then we wouldn't have been able to control the quality. And I wouldn't be able to have the confidence to know that like any box I grab, if there's a thousand boxes in front of me, I can grab any box I want blindly with my eyes closed and hand it to you with confidence and know that like that's going to be great nugs in there because we've set a standard for quality control and our processes and our SOPs. We follow them very tightly. And if it doesn't meet the requirement, it's not the box. So can't do that if somebody else is growing your product for you in the desert here, somebody's growing your product over here up north. And then they're gonna they're gonna decide and package your flower there and put whatever they want in there. They're gonna try and put as much as they can in there because that's what you're gonna they want to sell you as much as you as they can. <laughs> you know, like like we created a whole package, you know, just for the small buds, smalls for eights that are smalls that are more of a value buy because we just wanted the eighth that you pay for a premium eight to be just the top six inches of the plant. All right. So in closing here, and thank you so much for for sharing all this all your time. What, what advice would you give to maybe an entrepreneur who's listening to this podcast who, you know, see you've been in the game for so long. Some people might be a little newer to the game or maybe like a, a cultivator that was like you in the 80s, but is now starting his thing now. What is the one thing you kind of wish you knew getting into this that you didn't know when you were first starting that you kind of wish you knew that you know now? Oh, that's a really good question. It's tough, you know, because like you see how I, I am when I answer a question, I, I kind of run on and I talk forever. No, 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 you're not at all. I, I think you're pretty focused. We should say that you've been <laughs> enjoying a little dabbing as we speak as well. Yeah, I'm partaking you're and enjoying partaking. myself this morning. You know, starting out right now is a tough, always going to, it's always been tough. It's always been a very competitive place. California, like, is the Mount Everest of cannabis to try and climb this mountain and be a, a brand leader in this space in California. There's a lot easier places to start. Oklahoma, example, very inexpensive to go to right now and start up. The licenses are like $1,500. Land is cheap. You could probably start out and build yourself a, a business out there for a few hundred thousand. And, and that's likely for even like a unsophisticated person to be able to raise that money if you have a decent network, a good reputation, and a clear vision that you can articulate to, to people. Pick one thing that you're really good at and stick to it. Don't try and do a bunch of things. Just Find one thing you're really good at it and become try and become the best at it and get better at it and keep refining your craft into, you know, where people are going like, yeah, man, I really like what you do. You roll the best joint or you make the best this or whatever it is. Just one thing and then try to create that into a larger scale and get it out there. If you're doing something good, there are people in the cannabis space who need you. They don't know what you know and how to do the things that you know how to do. What they know how to do is raise money and build infrastructures and fill out paperwork and get licenses. They don't know how to make good products or desirable things that 
The guys that, that have good intuition about what other people want, you're going to be able to pick and make it happen. The guys that just come from Wall Street, they have the worst ideas on products. They're like, put a bunch of trim in it. We're going to make more money. Like They're just looking at numbers. So pick one thing, get really good at it. Don't try and climb Mount Everest in California if you have the opportunity to start somewhere else. Like You'll, you'll make more money, be successful, have an easier time trying to get licenses and all these aspects. And just make sure you really, really love this because it's a grind. This is not a glamorous job. This is a grimy job that you don't get vacations. You work every single day, at least in the cultivation side of things. I'm envious of a lot of other brands sometimes of how they started and structured. You know, like some guys are like, okay, they don't grow the weed, but they're the, the face. And then these other guys, they run the stores and the brand just runs the brand, you know? And instead of it's like, we're growing, we're running the brand, we're running a store now. Like I'm running three businesses that I've never ran before ever in my life. And I'm figuring it out as we go. It's not easy. That's the, I hear that from so, and people say it's the hardest thing they've ever done in their lives. And, but you have a great vision and certainly a great team that you're working with. And, uh, I wish you all the best, Brett. Thank you so much. It's wonderbrett.com to check out Brett's wares and everything about his store. And I recommend if you are in Los Angeles area to swing by the dispensary in La Brea. Thanks, man. Yeah, thank you for having me on the show. Uh, Thank you, John. Thank you for listening to the Green Entrepreneur Podcast. To find out more about Green Entrepreneur, you can go to greenentrepreneur.com check out our magazine on newsstands everywhere. Check out our Instagram at Green Entrepreneur. We're also on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and all other social media feeds. If you like this podcast and you'd like to hear more from me, Jonathan Small, check out my other podcast, Right About Now. That's W-R-I-T-E to get some in-depth interviews into the lives and stories of successful writers, how they got there, what they learned, and what you need to succeed. That's rightaboutnowmedia.com. Until next episode, we'll THC you later.